so now we turn to that big part of my collage, the poetry. Uh, poetry and faith, to my mind, two very inseparable topics. Um, and I'm very conscious, and maybe this is the case for you, that for many people, that word poetry is a, is a very scary term um, because it can have really bad memories of uh, either boredom or humiliation at school, <clears throat> as you try to remember or recite. Um, a lot of people gave up on poetry at school and then tried to get back to it later in life. You know, they've nipped into Waterstones and bought an anthology and they've had a go and they thought, oh, what's all this about? And they give up. Uh, there's even a word for it, uh, metrophobia, the fear of poetry. It's not the fear of the London Underground, it's the fear of poetry, metrophobia. Or, um, if you prefer Blackadder, he once said, Baldrick, I'd rather French kiss a skunk than read your poetry. <coughs> well, um, I remember very strongly the day I realised my life needed more poetry in it. Um, I was a curate at St. John's Wood. I went to hear Wendy Cope read her poems in the parish. She was in a, a school up the road. And uh, she read a short poem, which some of you will have heard me read before. Uh, and it was a poem about her grandmother. And of course, this, I can see now, had instant resonances. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to read it to you. It's, as I say, written about her grandmother, and she called the poem Names. She was Eliza for a few weeks when she was a baby. Eliza Lily. Soon, it changed to Lil. Later, she was Miss Stewart in the baker's shop. And then, my love, my darling, mother. Widowed at 30, she went back to work as Mrs. Hand. Her daughter grew up, married and gave birth. Now, she was Nana. Everybody calls me Nana, she would say to visitors. And so they did. Friends, tradesmen, the doctor. In the geriatric ward, they used the patient's Christian names. Lil, we said. Or Nana. But it wasn't in her file. And for those last bewildered weeks, she was Eliza once again. I listened to those few simple lines that capture the fragile life cycle of a woman that you're already feeling tender towards <laughs> after just 107 words. And I found I was crying. I often say to preachers, memo to self, you don't need 107 points or even 107 minutes. You can do extraordinary things with 107 words. Not all poems, of course, make you cry, but what became clear to me as I sat there and, and afterwards 
was that when we're talking about poetry, I think we're talking about a soul language, a way of crafting words that distills your experience into something that feels like a purer truth. And that's what I think the Irish poet Michael Longley said when he was asked, he was asked, where do, where do you get all your poems from? Where, it's amazing. Where do you get them all from? He said, if I knew where poems came from, I'd live there. <laughs> I called this new book that I've written The Splash of Words because a good poem, it seems to me, is like the pebble that you throw into the lake. There's that immediate splash. That splash was the silence in this room when I finished the poem. There was the splash. And then the poem begins its work. The ripples set out, as it were, towards your shore, and they lap over your understandings, shifting your sands, unsettling some stones. And if you're like me and you think that at the end of the day theology is a sort of beachcombing exercise, then a poem and its work will often bring things up onto your shore that you might want to take home with you. Of course, in the um, church, the, um, <laughs> we often think we're rather good with language, uh, a bit cool and hip. Um, this isn't always the case. I remember in North London a few years ago seeing a very large fluorescent green poster outside a church that was speaking to shoppers passing by, and it simply said, tired of sin. <laughs> then come in. <laughs> to which somebody had written at the bottom, but if not, telephone 642. <laughs> What strikes me about our use of language quite often in the faith community is that we can be very obsessed about being relevant, when it seems to me that what we should be striving for is not relevance but resonance. Thinking the difference between the two is your homework, but I promise you there is a difference. Relevance speaks to the passing now, resonance is speaking somehow to the eternal deeper elements of our being alive. <clears throat> One of the poems in the book is written by a Norwegian called Olav Hauger. Don't give me the whole truth. Don't give me the sea for my thirst. Don't give me the sky when I ask for light. But give me a glint a dewy wisp, a moat, as the birds bear water drops from their bathing, and the wind a grain of salt. As you heard, I was uh, originally from Shropshire, and some of you have heard me tell you about the, the garden at the, at the bottom of my grandmother's house. There's a field just beyond it, 
And in the field is a wonderful old man called Tom. He must be in his mid-80s now. And uh, a couple of years ago, I saw him walking along, and he was carrying his um, crook. And I laughed. I called him over, and I said, oh, my boss back in London carries one of those things as well. And I, I asked him, do you really use it to hook in naughty sheep? Is that what it's for? And he laughed, and he said, no. Um, let me tell you what this is really good for. He said, what I do is I stick it firm into the ground. And he said, then I can hold on to it and keep myself so still that eventually the sheep learn to trust me. I've been absolutely longing to preach at the consecration of a bishop ever since I heard that story. <laughs> the idea that your pastoral staff or your faith is something that keeps you so still and centred near the humus, the root of humility, that actually you might be found trustworthy by those around you. I suppose using that image, that's what I'm asking of a language. A place of greater depth, greater sentiments that might be trustworthy. How do we look for that language? Well, I would say look poetic. But let's just go back to that problem <clears throat> that some people you know, might be sitting out there now thinking, well, you know, this is all a bit Radio 4. I wandered lonely as a canon, you know. Um, but I still have the problem that I don't really get it. I don't really like it that much. And what I say in the book is um, just think what you'd be doing if you were going on a, a sort of weekend break now, I don't know, to, to Belgium or to France or wherever, and what you'd be doing before you set off is you go online and you buy your guidebook and you decide whether you're going to learn a bit of uh, Flemish uh, or where the flea markets are or the restaurants, uh, and that off you'd go and you'd look around and you'd try out you know, your odd phrase uh, and then, at some point in your little weekend break, you'd suddenly realise you don't get it. You can't understand a sign. You don't understand why the national symbol of Belgium is a boy peeing into a fountain. There are things that suddenly don't make sense. And, of course, that's why we love going on holiday. We discover new things. And uh, to be at a loss to discover the comfort of strangers uh, is part of the beauty and the relaxation of, of a break. And I just say that reading poetry can be seen in the same sort of way, that you can do all your prep, you can you know, learn about scanning and um, assonance and... Um, whatever rhythms, <clears throat> you can do all the customs and the rules that you like, but the thing is that you've just got to set out. And you've got to admit to yourself that when you start reading these poems, you will find yourself at a loss from time to time. And you've just got to accept it as part of the exhilaration. You will be confused. 
This is language, but not as we know it. This is language in uh, a state of emergency. Um, and this is where I go back to the point I made earlier, that this might be very important. Difficulty. Difficulty spiritually is an important thing. Coleridge actually suggested that poetry holds open a shape or a space which we have yet to grow into. So it feels new, but dislocating. But something in us says we want to go there. A quick exercise. <clears throat> if I um, suddenly said to you now, here is the news. You probably um, sit up and you tune in to hear the news, the facts. Well, one hopes the alternative facts. You would tune in to hear truth coming at you in a particular form, the facts of the last twenty-four hours. But instead of saying that, if I just said to you instead. Once upon a time, you'd probably tune in again to hear truth, but now coming at you in a different form, form of story. We love stories because they communicate meaning, but without summarizing it. Children will want you to tell them over and over again. My haunting question <laughs> is... When people walk into a church or a place of worship, into a faith community, how have they tuned in? Have they come expecting, here is the news? Is it some sort of Google temple of information readily at hand? Or, and here's my prejudice, have they just walked into a poem? And that if you have just walked into a poem, but you've tuned in for the news, you're going to be really frustrated. <laughs> it's a category error. And my experience is that many people do walk in expecting the news of the day, when, of course, if you're a Christian, what you should be alert to is the good news. And the good news has a different language. And I'll come back to that. But certainly, if you do go into that church, and you're lucky enough, as I was, that morning with the man in green, you've walked into poetry in motion. Uh, so the first thing you will do when that man in, or woman now, walks in in green, is you will stand up and you will sing a poem. It's called a hymn, or a worship song. Then you'll hear an ancient poem called a song. And then prayers will be said, full of images and metaphors and similes, because frankly, give me one literalistic statement about God that isn't a metaphor, and I'll buy you lunch. It's all metaphor, it's all figurative, it has to be. How could it not be? And that's why, if I'm going to say one provocative thing for you to take, here it is. Fundamentalism is to Christianity 
what paint by numbers is to art. I really believe that. Because if you're dealing with odd, this has to be language at the gym, <laughs> working out hard as it can, exercising to try and do a glimpse of justice to the being, the source of love and life. And that poetry even goes into physicality. So even if you're a high church cleric or you're a charismatic singer, even your gestures become poetic. This is me in the vocative. Uh, for people who find this difficult, I just remind them, um, think of yourself when you, when you fell in love. Perhaps some of you are in love, as I speak now. Perhaps some of you just found your one love in life. I can see one or two flushed faces as I speak to you. Maybe, you're, maybe it's just the heat, actually. But, uh, <clears throat> but just think, when you fall in love and you try and express it, and if you've still got those little notes you wrote to the first person you fell in love with, they're excruciatingly embarrassing because you became a poet. You tried to express everything you really are feeling and thinking and wanting to express. You will use language in every possible way to express it. You become a poet when you're in love. Um, if that's the case, if poetry is the language of love, it's the language of the church. It has to be. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. How are we going to do it? With the language of love. When you're in love, truth is far too important to be literalistic with. The same with religious truth, the truths of faith. They are far too important to be simply literalistic with. Here's a poem uh, I put in the book. It's not by a Christian, it's by uh, Hafiz, or Shamsuddin Muhammad, if you want his proper name. One of the most loved and admired of Persian poets. He was writing around the same time as Chaucer, if you want to get him in the timeline. Um, here's a little poem he wrote, translated by Daniel Ledinsky. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God. And that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Tripping over joy and saying, I surrender. Now, this is not a 
purely Christian phenomenon by any means. And in fact, one of the things I try and spell out, and I'll do it very briefly here, is how the other faith traditions are also poetic in their expression. The earliest sacred texts of Hinduism, the Vedas, are in effect thousands of poems. The Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, composed in verse. In China, the classic Tao, written poetically. Uh, the opening verse referring to the gate to all mystery. The gate to mystery. It's a nice uh, description of poetry, that is. A gate to all mystery. Then, of course, the Hebrew Bible, um, full of poetic exploration. Of course, the Psalms, the noble language of Job, the naughty song of songs, as some people see it, the riddles of the Proverbs, the prophets, warning what we've all turned into. They don't do it in, um, you know, they don't write a, a sort of strategic paper, a business plan. <laughs> they become poets because they know, like the great prophets of our own days, the Martin Luther Kings, that you will be changed more by the poetic dream than the strategic plan. The Gospels, I'll come back to in a moment, but go to the Quran, where God is the poetic author of a text so beautiful that Muslims develop a chant style to recite it, so that as you recite it, it translates into your being. So the Shahada, or the Confession of Faith, uh, in the Arabic, transliterated, sounds like this. La ilaha illa Allah. If you've got a poetic ear, you can hear your double consonants and your open vowels giving this the rhythm, the emphasis for translating into your life. La ilaha illa Allah. Now this isn't saying that poetry is just a nice and better way of saying something else. This is saying poetry is the way you say the truth. Truth found in this form. It's not a bit of nice titillation. This is the channel. Now, the Christian Gospels are not so obviously poetic until, of course, you study them. And then you see the artistry of the writers, the four evangelists, and what you encounter is the persistently figurative preaching of Jesus. Jesus taking people on that weekend break to Belgium all the time, leaving people wondering, we're told in the Gospel, what on earth he means sometimes they're following him, saying, sorry, could you just explain that? He would have scored B- minus in seminary preaching class. <laughs> he did not have three clear points. <laughs> he tells parables and stories. His language hovers. It never quite comes into land. You've got to help that happen. He is figurative. He is poetic. He is a storyteller. And uh, to make the point, you know the Good Samaritan never existed? Prodigal son? Uh -uh. There was no Lazarus at the gate. No woman ever lost a coin. Jesus made them up. He made them up. He was a verbal artist. 
similes, metaphors, parabolic riddling, all the time. Why? Because I think his stories are designed not to make easy sense. They're there to make you, to transform you, to change you, to remake you. And of course, every, I mean, I'm going to have to leave you at four o'clock because I have to go and uh, take even song at the cathedral. Every night I stand there and I recite the creed. Jesus was born, he suffered, he died, he rose again. And I sort of want to say, yeah, but there was something in between. He talked. There's no reference made in the creed. Now I understand the political, historical context of the creeds, but it is a bit weird that we are pronouncing our faith without any reference to his stories, his teachings. Imagine writing a statement of belief about Martin Luther King without ever making any reference to his sermons or his speeches. But how difficult it would be to begin paraphrasing, summarizing what he was teaching because of the form in which he did it. Um, what does he say at the end of his stories quite often? Can you remember? What? What's the one thing that he often says to round off his story? If you've got the ears to hear, then hear. Could that have meant have you tuned in right? Have you tuned in right? If you've got the ears to hear the language of the kingdom of God and not just the language that you might find comfortable. This is not the news, this is the good news. And as I say, um, the poet Hafiz, who I just read the poem to you, he has a lovely expression in another one of his poems. He says, We need a language that pulls the chair from beneath our mind and watches ourselves fall onto God. All that control that we often like. What does this mean? Tell me what it means. You know, we often get it with art. We? Yes, well, tell me what it means. No. Encounter it. So you would never ask you to have a piece of music. You know, the organ voluntary, yeah. The, at the cathedral, it would be a very bizarre question to say, Cananoclea, what did that mean? Well, listen to it. Just, just listen to it. Enjoy it. Be challenged by it. It's the same quite often with the teachings of Jesus. Encounter it. Let it remake you. Um, so, the conclusion, as you sweep across broadly, as I've just done, the religious spiritual traditions is God is a poet. <laughs> um, this is not a new con uh, conclusion. The former dean of St. Paul's in the 17th century, John Dunn, having read the Bible, told God what was now very evident to John Dunn. And he wrote this. So he's speaking to God, having just read the Bible. Thou art a figurative, 
a metaphorical God, in whose words there is such a height of figures, such voyages, such peregrinations, to fetch remote and precious metaphors, such curtains of allegories, such high heavens of hyperboles, so harmonious elocutions, as all profane authors seem of the seed of the serpent that creeps. But thou art the dove that flies. I often remember, of course, that when you listen to John Donne preach and say, Paul, you would have been listening for about an hour and a half. <laughs> so God, for me, is a poet. The tragedy is that the troubles begin when people of faith become cursed with illiteralism and they simmer down the richness, the ambiguity, the resonance into something black and white and then that quickly turns into something weaponized. We've all encountered people with their biblical bullets that they're firing at you to prove that they're right and you're wrong. But to put it succinctly in the words of my poet uh, friend and the leader of the uh, Coromila community, Padre Cochuma, he says, you know, whatever Jesus of Nazareth's death means, it doesn't mean something that can ever be written on a fridge magnet. Language is sacramental. It is about beginnings and not ends. God should never be a word for a bumper sticker. The very early theologian, John Chrysostom, uh, said that when you read the scriptures, you should never hammer away at a particular word or a phrase. You know, do come to our eight weeks on the first verse of Habakkuk. He says, no. Always read the scriptures like a letter from a friend. Read the love between the lines. And if anybody is interpreting the scriptures to you and you cannot hear the love between the lines, don't trust the interpretation. And that's where, for me, poetry also, to use that uh, image of love between the lines, comes to its fore. It helps us read the love between the lines of our lives. And this is where I want to make my final points. So, I believe, um, very strongly, that God has given everybody in this room a great gift. It is your being. And you're asked to give one gift back in return for it. It's called your becoming. Who you become, what you become in your life that has been gifted to you. And as I said, you can put it in that other way. God loves you just as you are, but so much he doesn't want you to stay like that. So we need a language in our faith that's not so much about information as about formation. A language that helps us become. 
So, yes, I do believe the teachings of Jesus do not set out to answer all your questions so much as to question all your answers. Because you've yet to become more. And we will need a language that can enlarge your heart, can stretch your mind, can provoke the more humane in you, and lead you to a larger understanding of the divine. What we're more used to is prose. Prose fills lots of lines up, then stops, stops again. Poetry will not do that. It is uh, word-spaced, punctuation is sometimes wonky. This is, as I say, a completely different language, and it all happens on a blank sheet of paper. Now, if you're, if you're just a, a prose writer, you just need to fill this up. But a poet will say, no, 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 this, this white sheet, it, it's really a little bit like icy cold life. I have to be very careful now how I'm going to chisel into this the things that matter, the things that might be a lifeline across this snowy landscape we call existence. I'm going to, as it were, like a frosted window in a car, I'm going to start scratching. And the space will be as important as the wording. The white is as important as the black. The sounds of each word are as important as what they look like. Now, we know that, by the way. We, we're not always attuned to it, but the sound of a word or a phrase is always caught up with its meaning. So if I said to you now, hurry up, hurry up, or slow down, the way language works is the sound is caught up with its meaning. Rhythm. Uh, prose just chugs along like a train. <laughs> but the rhythm of poetry is something which we, uh, and again, meditators know about rhythm. And you know about the prime rhythm, which each of you has in you, is here. It's going, titum, titum, titum. If we want to be posh and poetic, this is called an I am. A short and a long stress. Titum, titum, titum. Take one breath. <gasps> How many I ams can you get in that? Titum, 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 titum. Five. Oh, iambic pentameter. The I am and the five becomes the way that a lot of English language poetry is resonated. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? It is a very natural way of expressing. It's caught up actually with our physicality. We forget it. But anybody who is meditating will soon learn it. Um, so that's why I talked... Uh, in the title, of poetry being a fountain, not a river. This is not a river of prose that sweeps across the plain. This is a fountain from which we draw. Poetry will, 
you know, we've all heard of creative writing courses. If you're going to take poetry seriously, you now need to apply yourself to creative reading. There will be no quick clarity. There will be no seductive, easy answers. There will be no one meaning that you can discover all for yourself and tell everybody else that only you've got it. There will be no evidence you can give to the court for that. Get a group of people talking about one poem and you will suddenly discover that very clearly. It's a bit like preaching, actually. Um, if I'm preaching to 80 people, there are 80 different sermons being heard and not one of them is the one I'm giving. <laughs> Poetry will challenge those first impressions because spiritually we know that if we only live according to first impressions, we are living a half-dead so when you buy a poetry book, actually, warning, you're not getting many words for your money. You're getting a lot more meaning for it. Though. You can never paraphrase poetry. It can't be done. You can sometimes try and explain, and this is of course what I try and do in this book, a little bit about the context of a poem and so on, draw out some of the resonances, maybe, but you can't paraphrase it. You try and paraphrase that poem uh, that you heard of Wendy Coates on names. You can't do it. Poems communicate somewhere deep within us before they're intellectually understood. R.S. Thomas, the priest and poet, said, a poem is what makes your way, it makes its way to your intellect via the heart. It makes its way to your intellect via your heart. And that's why they are potentially transformative. And that is why it isn't just Radio 4, Canon Oakley, you know, giving us his hobby. This is what happens when you're trying to rehabilitate young offenders. This is what happens when you have unspoken grief in Manchester. What happened? Who was in the papers the following day? the Manchester poet. This is what happens when you go into a hospice and you're trying to find words for the end of a life and to comfort. This is what happens when two people fall in love and they can hardly begin to voice how they're feeling in front of all the people that matter to them. They reach for a poem. I felt this very deep when I was writing this book. I was in the States and uh, they, uh, the police had just shot a, a young black a uh, man in uh, Missouri, and there was a, they set up a, like a shrine on the street, and there was an enormous cardboard box, and it had all been painted black with gold letters in it. And it simply said, they tried to bury us. They forgot we are seeds. Beautiful. I was intrigued by this. I spoke to a friend of mine, he said, oh, I've done a bit of research. He said that was used by indigenous Mexicans in a battle of liberation, but it was originally written by a Greek gay author who was ostracized by the literary community for his sexuality, and he wrote, they tried to bury me, but they forgot I am a seed. Now here is 
poetry working its way through three different forms of uh, liberation protest. So it is not simply about the middle classes enjoying a little bit of Wendy Cope. It's often it's about life and death language, and language of protest, a language that we help children to understand their world with, and, and, uh, and a language that we help people celebrate their existence in the world with. And in the next session after lunch, I'm going to start looking at some of these poems um, with you. This book is not scholarly. Uh, it is just enthusiastic, because I really believe what I'm saying to you. Um, but I have to admit, as I try to write about some of these uh, poems, that Auden, W.H. Auden, is absolutely right when he said, a poem should always be much more interesting than anything you can ever say about it. Okay. But um, the poets that I chose, uh, people often say to me, why did you choose, you know, there's no Eliot. People often say, there's no T.S. Eliot in it. I love Eliot. But what I did was I just, I was hugely indulgent. I just chose poems that had set that splash and ripple in me and tried to explore why. And, and you'll know some of them and... Um, you know, you'll know the George Herberts, the John Dunns, the Dylan Thomas, but you might not know Jen Hadfield, who's a poet working in the Shetlands at the moment. Fantastic writing. She has a real eye and ear for, what, for ordinary life. She says, oh, I, I put on my kaboo and it crackled like a rack of lamb. <laughs> She's got that sort of ear. Liz Berry, who's working at the moment in the black country, there's an accent that uh, everybody thinks, particularly the BBC, thinks is very ugly, so we don't hear it very often. And she transforms it through her poetry into the most beautiful uh, language. Um, and I hope there's a real variety here. We see the movement, the formation, that is disturbing our surfaces in order to reveal our depth. So, yeah, Meister Eckhart, God is like a person coughing in the dark, giving himself away. Poetry is where I hear the cough, I think, or one of the places I hear the cough. Certainly poetry has become the language that has interrupted my snoring. Uh, the splash makes me jump, freshens, puzzles. And this was the book that I wrote really trying to celebrate the great truth, which I'm going to send you off into your lunch with, just to reflect on, that perhaps God is in this world just as poetry is in the poem. Have a great lunch. Mm -hmm.